Dan. Hello, Katie. Welcome, everybody, to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may or may not have heard of. And this week is our 50th episode. Yay! Woohoo! It's us! And so we thought we'd do something special that we haven't tried before, which is doing a kind of joint episode where we talk about two people that are interconnected and without the other one, their life would have been incredibly different. (laughs) And we talked a lot about who we could do. And then when we landed on these two people, it was like the perfect combination. So Dan, why don't you tell everyone who we're talking about? So this week we will be talking about King Charles I and Oliver Cromwell. So this is Indeed. a Cavaliers versus Roundheads <laughs> episode of Have You Ever Heard Of? Yeah, and Dan will be taking the Cavaliers, who will be doing Charles I, and I will be doing the Roundheads, <laughs> um, Oliver Cromwell. And we'll try and keep it as succinct as we usually do, but because it's two people, it may be a little bit longer. And we apologise, but hopefully it will be informative. So, shall we get started? Shall I tell you about my person, then you can tell me about your person? (laughs) Yeah, why don't you get started and tell us about Charles I's early life? So, let's start with the uh, basic details. So, he was born on the 19th of November 1600 at Dunfermline Palace uh, in Scotland to James VI of Scotland and James I of England and Anne of Denmark. So it was in Scotland, not England, where Charles spent most of his childhood. So while his father moved south, down south to Westminster upon receiving the English crown, um, Charles was left in Scotland, mainly because of his physical infirmities, which was so bad that his family actually thought he might die. Like, they thought it was unwise to move him. His health was so bad. So what did he have? He had rickets. So severe <laughs> that he required a special boot with brass inserts to help him stand while his brain strengthened. So that's pretty harsh. Rickards is dark. Also, which is not good for a king, he had a speech defect that caused him to stutter. Which, uh, oh no. Which is actually not uncommon for kings. I mean, like, King George, <laughs> have... the king George sick, the... had it. And I think, did his father have it as well? Oh, I don't remember. But yeah, definitely, obviously, George yeah. VI. Um, so Charles seems to have venerated his father and adored his mother growing up. Uh, interesting fact, Charles was never supposed to be king. He had an old brother. Yes, he did. The charismatic uh, Henry. Um, Henry used to, cheese, uh, used to tease Charles um, uh, for his childish earnestness by threatening to make him an arch- archbishop when he grew up. But despite this, they were close, um, though he was even closer to his sister Elizabeth uh, and would be heartbroken when she married Frederick Habsburg and was sent off to take her place by husband's side in the Holy Roman Empire. This is Another interesting. interesting person. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That whole This whole period of like the Habsburg history is like fascinating. Yeah, it's crazy. we'll have to do her at some point, one of us. But uh, but she's going to get caught up in all of this craziness because um, it's basically it's uh, it's Elizabeth's later predicament and basically it's like his determination to save his sister that would go on to heavily influence his politics and eventually his downfall. Yeah, uh, where you guys come in. <laughs> so um, Charles received a conventional princely education. He loved reading and developed a lifelong passion for the plays of Shakespeare and theatre in general and art. 
which yes, uh, which you're gonna actually really... gonna be able to give us a bit of information on. Well, yeah. So as some of you know, I've been really interested in the Baroque right now, and Charles was obviously hit right at the beginning of the Baroque period was when he was born. So he was obsessed with art and one of his greatest passions was bringing artists to the court for both himself and his future wife to fill up their walls with masterpieces. So he brought people like Artemisia who would come and be in court and paint things for him and he had all sorts of things on his walls, Rembrandts, etc. And Obviously, when Cromwell came into power, those things were not to Cromwell's liking. So it's a really interesting piece of Charles's life that everyone should look up online. There was a actual exhibition that should have been on for longer, which hit right at the beginning of the pandemic, which was all of Charles I's works like that he mm. had collected. Um, but I think you can find that online. So if you're interested, Google Charles I exhibition and you might be able to find some of his works. But this is all quite different from some of the, uh, from most of the later monarchs, actually, including our current crop, who have all been basically described as Philistines and dolts, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, Charles I, as I'm sure you'll talk about his religion, was very interested in religion. He was. So that it was influenced in his art. Um, well, he received uh, religious instruction from the moderate Scottish Presbyterian, uh, Thomas Murray. Mm. So he was by no means a religious extremist, like Allah and Edward Tudor, for instance. Um, though uh, his his religion would be one of the thing, one of his downfalls, weirdly, despite not being that crazy. He would make some mistakes, but we'll get on to that later. Um, he was also a gifted linguist, frequently sending his uh, father letters in Latin and French to uh, to praise yeah. him of his progress. Uh, he was a good mathematician and not unskilled in music, which is how I like to describe myself. Um, <laughs> he was excellent in history and no less in the laws and statutes of the nation. Um he was also described by one of his early chaplains as sober, grave and sweet. But he was also determined, evidenced by his overcoming of the physical afflictions, and started to become a successful tournament competitor, so I'm guessing that's like jousting and stuff, and a capable debater. So I mean, like, hardly seems like the makings of a tyrant, I would say. No, it doesn't at all. So Charles's childhood was quite uh, easygoing. Uh, he didn't have too much in the way of responsibilities. Uh, this would change profoundly in 1613. Uh, so while overseeing preparations uh, for his sister Elizabeth's marriage, he received word that his brother had been taken ill. So he raced to be by his brother's side, uh, stayed by his side throughout his illness, playing cards with him, uh, until his final Aww. days, which was quite, which was quite nice. I mean, like he was only 12, and it yeah. fell to him to take uh, take take care of his. Uh, his older brother. His his dad basically just took to his bed. So yeah, and he took the role of uh, chief mourner at his brother's funeral and then after that became heir. Uh, unfortunately, Charles lacked the charisma of his brother. So he's kind of always been described as being shy, uh, struck observers as being silent and reserved. Being so much less outgoing, uh, he would never be able to inspire the same confidence or loyalty his older brother had. Um, it's also said he lacked the common touch, but I mean, didn't they all at this time? Like, I don't think anyone yeah. had like the common touch. <laughs> Who did? I mean, 
none of them. No, I mean, really. no one's going to be hanging out with like, oh. pe- like Mr. Joe Peasant down in the fields. Mr. <laughs> Joe Peasant. <laughs> um, I also said that he travelled about a little, but I mean, I mean, as we go into the story, like we'll see that that's not true either. So I mean, like these are all kind of like strange uh, judgments that have been made later on. I think. Um, yeah. So he would mo- lose his bro- uh, beloved mother six years later. Again, Charles would take the role of be- uh, role of bedside vigil and chief mourner, while James once again retreated to his bed. So his dad doesn't seem to be very helpful in any of these kind of like family tragedy situations. Oh, James the first. Yeah. <sighs> uh, a year later, things kicked off in the Holy Roman Empire when Elizabeth's husband, Frederick Habsburg of the Catholic Holy Roman Empire was offered the crown of Bohemia by the kingdom's Calvinist leaders. So basically, he was meant to be kind of a Catholic himself, but because the Protestants in Bohemia, which is now like Prague, uh, the Czech Republic sort of area, uh, decided that they wanted to kind of... It's not exactly split away from the Home Roman Empire, but they wanted kind of like a strong Protestant influence. So they kind of picked this other Habsburg who was willing to to kind of like take up their Protestant um, cause. So this basically caused like a massive war with his brother. I think it was his brother or his cousin. I can't remember. Um, who's kind of like the the leader of the Austrian Habsburgs. And I think he was the actual Holy Roman Yeah, he was the Holy Roman Emperor. So they kind of went to war over religion. I mean... Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, blah, blah, blah. So, kind of like battle ensured after this and Frederick was defeated at the Battle of White Mountain. So that's kind of, that's his, his sister's kingdom now, kind of like screwed. Um, so in order to support his sister's cause, he called, he supported the calling of parliament. The calling of parliament. So he did support the calling of parliament previously, in 1621 <laughs> and placed himself amongst the militarists in his rank, ranks to uh, advocate supporting the Protestant cause in Europe. Uh, but, but. So it's kind of like here that his distrust of Parliament started. He believed that while the Lords were a good bunch, I mean, that's kind of typical for kings anyway, uh, the Commons was un- like unfocused and petty. Uh, and he be- viewed it with increasing al- alarm. Um, so this is still when his father is ruling, Yeah, yeah, right? this is still this yeah. is when it's like the Prince of Wales. Um, so the lower house only begrudgingly assented to the request for like war finance, but only in exchange for the fall of Lord Chancellor Francis Bacon, who's a staunch uh, Stuart ally. So kind of like that left a bit of taste, I think. Um, mm. Although they kind of got their money for, for the military, both... The, the, the Stuart pair, both James and uh, and Charles, realised that there could be no military victory without a political settlement. So to achieve this, it was decided that Charles would marry the Spanish Infanta. So Parliament... Um, blah, blah, blah. So parliamentary and internal indecision and conflict over the, the religious implications. Charles marrying a Catholic. I mean... Mm. It's going to cause some problems. Um... Kind of slowed the progress of such an agreement. So the idea was kind of like to 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 marry Charles to the Spanish branch of the Habsburgs in order to kind of placate the Austrians and then get the land back that way, uh, rather than just having to like fight a war. Um, so Charles's marriage is all to do with his sisters 
yeah, problems. Basically. Well, I mean, like, well, that's the thing. Like, the, the marriage kind of, like, failed. There's kind of all this kind of, like, arming and arming. So Charles, taking the initiative, decided to sneak into Spain. So, like, an unofficial uh, visit. He was accompanied by his buddy, uh, Lord Buckingham. So this is kind of like his best friend, but also his dad's boyfriend. We're going to hear a lot about Buckingham. Well, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna he's going to come about up Buckingham. a lot. He's going to come up. This is an interesting moment, actually, where he sneaks into Spain. Yeah. Um, another interesting bit of his art, because he was actually taken quite well, wasn't he? He was, By yeah. the king. Um, and he gave him masterpieces. Yeah, okay, so some then. of the masterpieces that Charles had were given to him by the king of Spain. Yeah, because I'm quite surprised he turned up because it wasn't an official vi- uh, an official uh, visit at all. They just kind of snuck across the border in a, in what him and Buckingham had called the Voyage of the Knights of Adventure, which is a, it's a really childish name to call it, but I mean... Anyway. I was about to say, it sounds like a yeah. <laughs> short story in like a boy's adventure book. Um, on top of the art, they also put on a mock battle. So, I mean, basically they staged a live action war film for him. I mean, that sounds pretty cool to me. I'm down <laughs> with that. Um, so things kind of went well at the beginning. He basically just fell in love with the Avanta as soon as uh, he, he laid eyes on her. However, as soon as the king, uh, Spain found out that Charles wasn't going to convert to, uh, to Catholicism, the deal fell apart. Yeah. Um, so... Charles kind of like booked out of there as quickly as possible, thinking that uh, <laughs> things are going to go go south for with him. his masterpieces under his <laughs> well, arm. Yeah. Uh, so, although he arrived with a heart brimming of love for his intended bride, he left with one filled for hate for her father's duplicitous government. Um, he returned to prison uh, to a ton of adulation, genuine relief, uh, genuine relief for his safety. But also for the failure of the match, because the country kind of det- detested the Spanish match. They didn't want a Spanish queen. Um, so, with war against Spain on the cards, with the failure of this marriage, it was decided that Charles would instead marry the still Catholic uh, Henrietta Maria, sister of the French king, Louis Thirteenth, to secure an alliance there. Yeah. Um, at this time, Charles was also able to negotiate a coalition with the Dutch uh, against his sister's enemies. So that kind of like a display, a bit of like um, diplomatic prowess there. So, on in March 1625, um, King James I would die. That's the 27th of March, isn't it? 27th of March, there you go. And Charles I would become king. Wow. And that was the beginning of the end <laughs> for him. So why don't I now talk about Oliver Cromwell's early life and we can see how different the two were. Catch up to the... Very different. So Oliver Cromwell was born very near Charles I in terms of time. He was born on the 25th of April, 1599. So, oh, okay. you know, almost a year apart in age, not quite. In Huntington, which is near Cambridge... His parents were Robert Cromwell, who is, yes, a descendant of Thomas Cromwell. I know some people wonder that. That is true. And his second wife, who was called Elizabeth. Lots of Elizabeths in this one. There's so many Elizabeths around this time. He, He was born into modest circumstances, but like modest 
for the upper classes. <laughs> yeah, he's still a, like a land. He's probably still part of the landed gentry. Exactly. So he like it's not true to say he was like a commoner, even though some people say he's like the most successful commoner ever. He he was still in the gentry. He had a Protestant family who did really well out of the Reformation. They started off as brewers and then they kind of worked their way up and they owned a small estate. Cromwell's paternal grandfather, who was called Sir Henry Williams, was one of the two wealthiest landowners in Huntingdonshire. Oliver was the fifth of ten children, but he was the only boy who survived infancy. Obviously, that's going to put a lot of pressure on him. He was baptised at the Church of St. England on the 29th of April, 1599, at St. John's Church. He grew up around a time of, as we've already talked about, kind of unrest, not just on foreign shores, but let's remember that 1605 was the gunpowder plot. Mm. So he was growing up around the time of unsure things going on with Parliament. Though his life during James I's reign was mostly stable, he attended school at Huntington Grammar School and then a year at Cambridge. But he actually returned to the estate when his father died because he was the only son that then meant he was in charge of the estate. That was in 1621. His mother was uh, widowed and he had seven unmarried sisters. So... He really needed to get some, like, (laughs) marriages sorted out for his sisters and for himself. So, in 1620, he married his wife, Elizabeth, another Elizabeth. (laughs) This is Elizabeth Brochier, when he was 21. Literally everyone was called Elizabeth around this time. I know, it's a bit weird. I mean, (laughs) just at least some of them be called, like, Liz or something. (laughs) And she was the daughter of a London leather merchant. So, again, that kind of similar levels Uh. of... A tanner. Oh. Well, thinness. Together, over their lives together, they had nine children, three of which died young, but that's not uncommon. That's actually quite good innings. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's impressive. His son Richard, who is the only one that is even important to the story, was born in 1626. And then, as Dan said, on the 27th of March, 1625, James I died, and things started to change for Cromwell. So... Charles was now king, and he kicked off his reign by marrying his French bride, Henrietta Maria, soon afterwards. So, kind of, sort of, I mean, he was now king, but he was kind of gutted about his father's death. He had, like, loved his father deeply and believed James loved him. Though it seems James loved Buckingham even more than he loved his son. So, likely just as much out of loyalty to his father as to his friend, Buckingham retained his ascendancy over the new king. A parliament didn't like this. Um, <laughs> they really didn't like Buckingham. <laughs> which they made very clear when they met in June that year. <clears throat> so the Spanish War was... Uh, blah, 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 blah. The Spanish War was also proving a failure and Charles offered parliament no exclamation uh, of his foreign, po- foreign policy or its costs. On top of all this, Parliament was packed with inflexible Puritans. <laughs> oh, God, those inflexible Puritans. <laughs> So there's kind of like much conflict around the petty differences that only in religion and, oh, I'm going to make this comment as well, seemingly left-wing politics today can get angry <gasps> about. <laughs> in this case, the Puritans' love of uh, extemporaneous prayer and preaching versus the Anglican valuing, oh, the Anglicans valuing the prayer book and maintenance of ritual uh, seem to 
gonna like kick off a lot of uh, squabbles. I mean, yeah. I just don't even understand what any of that means. I mean, I don't know why they were so angry about that. <laughs> Charles I's Anglicanism yeah, yeah, yeah. was too close to just Catholicism for their liking. Mm. It had like all the fancy things, and they didn't like the fancy things, basically. But and I what... just, I'm just like, come on, you're just worshiping the same God. Exactly. Like, can you just all get together and have like just one thing but apparently christianity can't do that they have to have about five different things but that's what <laughs> the church like anglicanism's always been like it's like a cross between the two isn't it it's just like i don't know in the whatever. middle but <laughs> I'm anyway gonna i'm gonna cut that whatever out <laughs> uh so uh blah, blah, blah. um so parliament subsequently refused to vote him the right to levy customs duties except on the condition that he increased uh its powers um so you guys should remember that this is a right that's been granted to previous monarchs for life. So what game were you all not playing? That's what I want to know. <laughs> so the second parliament of uh, Charles' reign met in February 1626. And the king kind of cleverly kept his most vocal detractors away by appointing them sheriffs in their county so they couldn't leave. Um, but this wasn't really enough. Uh, the failure of a recent naval expedition against the Spanish port of Cadiz in the previous autumn, which was uh, obviously blamed on Charles Boyd Buckingham, um, mm-hmm. meant that the commons tried to impeach him for treason. To save Buckingham's skin, the ever loyal to his friend uh, Charles decided to dissolve Parliament once again. So now... Um, also, now, on top of duking it out with Spain, England became embroiled in a war with France, the exact thing that Charles's marriage was supposed to uh, prevent. Though, in Charles's defence, um, the war was kind of like in defence of Protestant Huguenots who were being butchered by the Catholic majority in, um, in France. And considering Charles is constantly accused of... Uh, papism i mean it seems a bit harsh and kind of inaccurate to me um i think harsh and inaccurate is gonna be a lot of yeah <laughs> what's going on um so in desperate need of funds the king imposed a forced loan which i'll, I'll concede um it w- w- was pretty uh illegal his judges declared it illegal uh in response he dismissed he dismissed the chief justice and ordered the arrest of more than 17 knights and gentlemen who refused to contribute so i mean that's a pretty good way to piss off parliament and understandable um so by the time charles's third parliament met in march 1628 buckingham's expedition to aid the french protestants at la rochelle had been decisively repelled and the king's government was now thoroughly discredited um the house of commons at once passed resolutions condemning arbitrary taxation and the arbitrary imprisonment um of its members and then set out its complaints in the petition of rights which sought the recognition of four principles. No taxes without consent of Parliament, no imprisonment without cause, no quartering of soldiers and subjects, and no martial law in peacetime. I mean, that just sounds like a good idea. All four of those things sound reasonable. You'd have to be a monster to say those demands weren't fair. Um, but these weren't demands that had, been, had ever been levelled at a king before. And mm. our boy Charlie did concede... I'm sure the Parliament would have had another pop at Buckingham, 
But he'd been assassinated by then anyway, stabbed to death by John Felton, a naval lieutenant who believed he was acting in defence of the principles asserted in the House of Commons. So in a way, they did kill him. Yeah, they just... They got him. Just Felton just, kind of took the... Not yeah. blame, but like, you know, he took one for the team. <laughs> <laughs> so Buckingham is dead. He is now done. Uh, so the House of Commons now objected to both what it called the revival of popish practices in the churches and levying, um, and also basically customs taxes. Um, so this seems unfair since he had fought wars against the Catholics in defence of Protestantism uh, without Parliament support. Um, so I mean, like this does seem like kind of like an excuse to me. Hmm. So deeming this turn in Parliament as revolutionary, King Charles decided to rule his kingdom without calling a Parliament for the next eleven years. Yes, I mean, and that was called what? The per- it was called the Personal Rule, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, so in this time, Charles made uh, peace with France and Spain. Um, although although heavily in debt from the war, the proceeds of the customs duty at a time of expanding trade and the traditional crown duties uh, combined to produce a revenue that was just adequate for a time of peace. In addition to the, to the customs tax, uh, the so-called ship money was levied to pay for the Royal Navy, first in 1634 in ports and later on inland towns as well. Um so it was like a ship tax, wasn't it? Yeah, so that kind of... Yeah. This has always been seen as unfair. However, the other way to look at it is Charles recognised that it was only uh, through a strong navy that Britain would be protected from invasion. Because we're like an island. Exactly. So... Something that seems so obvious to us now, especially considering later history. Um, however, the demands for ship money aroused obstinate and widespread resistance, especially in Parliament. Um, but there was no Parliament sitting. Well, you know, they talked talk about themselves. <laughs> yeah, you mean like chatted. Yeah, yeah. Not within the, the parliament, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so despite the tightening of the bells and sniping, these 11 years were the happiest of Charles's life. Uh, his marriage to Henrietta Maria had initially not been a happy one, and he had even ordered all her French entourage to quit Whitehall. However, following the death of Buckingham, he fell truly in love with his wife and came to value her console. So she became the advisor he no longer had since uh, yeah, Buckingham died. She, they were very close. And also this is when she started getting into his whole art collecting thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and uh, she had her own gallery. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, on the whole, the Kingston seems to enjoy a fair degree of prosperity around this time. Um, so that was until 1639 when Charles Bruce <laughs> instigated a war against his homeland, Scotland. Oh, so stupid. I mean, now, we all know these religious quarrels are pretty petty, and in 1637 he decided to impose a new liturgy based on the English Book of Common Prayer on Scotland. So the Scots were not a fan. Uh, many signed a national covenant to offend their Presbyterian religion. Could remember that Charles was raised in the Presbyterian religion, so it makes no sense that he would try and enforce this. I mean, like, it, I guess it does. Through the Anglican Church, you kind of like have a much greater political control over an area. So that was basically the idea behind it. Yeah, um, and also you know, wifey is a Catholic. Yeah, that's true. But I mean, Anglican and Catholic aren't totally synonymous. I wouldn't say. I th- I think it was just a political thing. Um, 
Foolishly, he then decided to try and enforce his policy by the sword, and it failed. He was outmaneuvered by a well-organised Scottish army, and a rather ignoble truce was signed in Berwick-upon-Tweed on uh, the 18th of June. So this was the Bishop's War? Yeah. Charles summoned um, the short Parliament in 1640 in order to raise money for the war against Scotland. Parliament instead just presented a list of grievances and opposed the war. So <laughs> Here's a list of things we don't like about you. So Charles did what he did best and dissolved it. Yeah, he, he dissolved <laughs> more Parliaments than, I mean, anyone else ever has. It was, like his, his move, it was like... If he was a Pokemon, his special move would be dissolving Parliament. He basically just got everyone in the room and then someone went, so we've got these just oh, screw this, get out, <laughs> we're done here. I'm done with this. <laughs> so he managed to fund the war through shit money, uh, admittedly a misuse of funds, since uh, that money's not for the army, Charlie, that's for the Navy. Um, but it was all in vain. The Scots managed to invade England in August and the King's troops panicked, panicked and ran before a cannonade at Newburn. So, yeah, that didn't go well. Uh, <laughs> on advice of his council, Charles summoned another parliament, the Long Parliament this time, which met at Westminster in November 1640. Um, yeah, this wasn't to go well either. The king <laughs> did adopt a conciliatory attitude. He agreed to the Triennial Act that ensured the meeting of parliament uh, once every three years. He also agreed to a measure whereby Parliament could not be dissolved without its own consent. And he gave up the ship money. He gave up the Royal Navy money. I mean, like, that's not even a good idea for, like, the country, let alone just, like, himself. But he gave it up. And for all those conciliatory gestures, uh, Parliament beheaded Strafford on the 12th of May, 1641, in which can only be described as a dick move. <laughs> So following this, there was a rebellion in Ireland. Uh, so this put a sizable army in Charles's hands. On the 22nd of November, 1641, the Commons passed the Grand Remonstrance, setting out all the king had done wrong since his accession. It was like basically a list of things they didn't like about Charles. It was like, here's the top 10 things we don't like about you. And one of them is your hair. It's silly. <laughs> They didn't they say that. To... that. Again, don't write that in your A-level words. It's one of those sketches where like, they give him a list and then he lets it roll out and it just like falls for like <laughs> ages. Um, it's just like that. <laughs> Parliament also seems to be coming after Charles's wife, Henrietta. So it's totally understandable that when Parliament demanded he relinquish control of the army of Ireland by signing the Militia Bill, he replied with, by God, not for an hour. <laughs> uh, ba ba ba. And they had ordered the rest of one member of the House of Lords and five of the Covenants for treason. But the accused members escaped, uh, however, and managed to hide in, in London. Just around London. It's a good city to hide in, to be fair. This was like January 1642 that this happened. Yeah. yeah. Um, so after this rebuff, the king left London on the 10th of January. This time for the north of England. Uh, the Queen went to Holland in February to raise funds for her husband by pawning the crown jewels. Serious. Mm. Um, so the King settled in York at this time where he ordered the courts of justice to assemble and where royalist members of both houses gradually joined him. In June, the majority of the members remaining in London sent the King the 19 propositions which included demands that no ministers should be appointed without parliamentary approval 
that the army should be put under direct parliamentary control and that parliament should decide about the future of the church. I mean, do we really want Puritans deciding that? That's my question. That um, is a question. <laughs> um, wish someone had asked that back then, but they did not. Uh, Charles did reply with an agreement that his should be a mixed government and not an autocracy, but this wasn't enough. So, both sides continued to arm and the king formally raised the royal standard in Nottingham on the 22nd of August, 1642, and sporadic fighting soon broke out all over the kingdom. So, where was Cromwell during this time? I hear you cry. Well, in 1628, he was elected to Parliament from the Huntingdonshire county town of Huntingdon. In that same year, he actually had a bit of an ailment, so shall we say, various ailments, physical and emotional. So, he had what we would now call depression and he was treated by the swiss-born doctor theodore de Mayrigny. cromwell basically was not only like physically drained but he was also depressed about his like spiritual beliefs he got sick and he nearly died and what a different story this would be if he had but he did not he got better And when he woke up, he was a changed man. He said he emerged from the darkness into light, the light of Puritanism. Oh, man. So this is the moment he changed. Yes, from this day on, he was a Puritan. Like a Puritan moth from a cocoon. (laughs) Exactly. He actually was in a cocoon. He wasn't. (laughs) Don't write that. Okay, so in 1629, Cromwell became involved in actually a dispute among the gentry of Huntington involving a new charter for the town. And as a result, he was actually called before a privy council in 1630, which is how like towns and stuff solve things like this. In 1631, Cromwell, likely as a result of this dispute, had to sell most of his properties in Huntington and move to a small farmstead nearby St. Ives. So this was like a big oh, wow. step down for his family. So that's the family land gone. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it would appear that in 1634, actually, Cromwell tried to emigrate to America, um, to Connecticut, but was prevented doing so by the the, by the government. They prevented him leaving. They would have loved him over there. <laughs> yeah, they really would have done. <laughs> Cromwell kept a small holding of chickens and sheep, selling eggs and wool to support himself. His lifestyle basically started to resemble Yeoman Farmer. So I guess when people say like he's the most successful commoner, then maybe you're referring to like this part of his life. Okay, yeah. So in 1636, Cromwell inherited a large fortune from his uncle who died childless which was just like changed everything for him. This is various properties in the town of Ely. I think it's a town. Let's go with town. Yeah, As a result, his income is likely to have risen to around 300 to 400 pounds per year, which is like... Big money in those days. Big money. He's not a commoner anymore. No, he ain't. He was a commoner for a hot minute there, and now he ain't anymore. By the end of the 1630s, Cromwell had returned to the ranks of the acknowledged gentry. He had become a committed Puritan, like I said. He had established important links to leading families in London and Essex. So, like I said, he was the MP, but obviously during that time that I was just talking about, there was no parliament, because that was the 
the 11 years of no parliament. We didn't need you. We didn't need you. <laughs> but then, obviously, in 1640, which is um, now Cromwell's back in good stead, and the short parliament convened. And so, obviously, Cromwell returns to parliament as a member for Cambridge. But obviously, this only lasted three weeks. And uh, Cromwell decided to move his family from Ely to London in 1640. Then we have the Long Parliament, which Dan talked about. During this time, Cromwell became linked with a religious group in the Commons and Lords who shared his Puritan beliefs. The group already had ideas of reformation and Cromwell took part in some of them in manoeuvres. In the first week, he made this impassioned speech about Charles I's imprisonment to a man called Freeborn John, which he was very passionate about. And then the second week, he launched an attack on Charles's branch of Christianity. So he's starting to, like make his name more well known. By 1641 everything was deteriorating and like Dan mentioned in January 1642 Charles tried to imprison five prominent MPs but they weren't there and that is when everything started to go down and in August of 1642 the official first English civil war had begun. So I don't know if you have heard this fact Dan but I think from what I've seen, the stats are around 200,000 deaths, which mm-hmm. doesn't sound like a lot, but actually proportionally, that is the most deaths a war has ever had for England. Like in proportion to the popular population, that's the biggest proportion. So this is really, really bloody war in terms of what it was then. Yeah, essentially the most destructive civil war of all time. So after, obviously, Charles I raises his army, the Parliament has to raise theirs. And this was Cromwell's moment. He actually joined Parliament's forces, even though he had little military experience and his only training was in the local county militia. In September of 1642, Charles moved his headquarters to Shrewsbury to recruit and train an army in the Welsh marshes. It's a good place to train an army. Toughen them up in the marshes. Lots of Um, land and it's (laughs) chilly and you've got lots of sheep as targets. (laughs) So, although brave, Charles never really had the stomach for war. He tried to rouse his troops before the Battle of Edge Hill with the speech, your king is both your cause and your quarrel and your captain. The foe is in sight. The best encouragement I can give you is that come life or death, your king will bear you company. And ever keep this field, this place, and this day's service in his grateful remembrance. Wow. It's not a bad speech. I mean, it's not like Braveheart <laughs> or Aragorn. In... I mean, neither of those are real. So <laughs> but it's pretty good. However, he was deeply perturbed by the slaughter on the battlefield and couldn't get over the sight. So, I mean, he cared about his men. Yeah, I mean, the Battle of Edgefield, which was in October of mm-hmm. 1642, was where Cromwell really shined. He yeah. kind of... There, there was like a stalemate, it wasn't there. But yeah. he got intel on Charles's cavalry and mm-hmm. Cromwell made his own cavalry and won the battle after battle. Like, he... That was his time to, like, really become what he was going to become. Yeah, he kind of saw the weakness of uh, the cavalry. So the, the Royalist cavalry was quite well trained, but it was it had, like, no discipline. So they'd do, they'd do <laughs> one charge... And then they'd go and chase the bag- baggage train to, uh, to put just to basically like uh, to loot it. So, they're just I mean, like, like the horses were just everywhere. 
And all the, all the like Quarantine's parents are like, okay, so if we basically discipline our cavalry enough so they'll do more than one charge that we'll be able to win. <laughs> yeah, that's what Cromwell was like. <laughs> I just realised. Uh, <laughs> um, blah, blah, blah. But still, I mean, uh, following the the Battle of Hedge, Hedge Hill, uh, the Royalists were still winning. Yeah. The Cavaliers won, <laughs> won the battles in Yorkshire uh, and and most of the battles in the South West. So they kind of... Uh, they controlled the Cornwall and the, and the West Country yeah. um, and the North. Um, the king then moved his court to Oxford, where he uh, had a grand old time living at Christchurch Church College. Oxford and Cambridge rivalry goes so deep that they were yeah. even on the, on the opposite sides during the, the English Well, yeah, because Cromwell had garrisoned Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. And the king was in Oxford. Um, so the queen, having sold some of her jewels... Uh, bought a shipload of arms from Holland, uh, landed in Yorkshire in February and joined her husband in Oxford in mid-July. Um, however, possibly due to the size of the slaughter, um, the king dallied. So Henrietta remonstrated with him upon her arrival, saying delays have always ruined you. Uh, and so the king assented to a scheme for a three-pronged attack on London from the west, from Oxford and from Yorkshire. Um but neither the West Country folk nor the Yorkshiremen were anxious to leave their district. So the problem with the King's army is he basically had a traditional kind of um, militia force. They were, they were kind of unwilling to leave their lands. Uh, they just wanted to stand there and defend. Um, so in the course of uh, of 1643, a peace party from the parliamentarian side made some approaches to Charles in Oxford. But because he was winning the war, the king was kind of cocky uh, around this time, around this time, and these failed. That was a mistake on your yeah, part. It was a mistake. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, um, and so, the Parliament allied themselves with the Scottish conventors, who then went on to threaten his northern flank. So while this en- uh, while this ended any plans to attack London, the king still managed to hold his line in the south. Uh, so he wasn't defeated just yet. Um, so everything was going really well for Charles but then Cromwell gained some experience and had a couple of successful actions in East Anglia in 1643 notably at the Battle of Gainsborough on the 28th of July he was then gained nickname Ironside he clearly had a lot of military skill like just like kind of natural skill I suppose so then we have the Battle of Marston Moor in July of 1644 and he Cromwell had risen to the rank of Lieutenant General in Manchester's army Cromwell fought at the head of his troops in the battle and was slightly wounded in the neck stepping away briefly to receive treatment during the battle but returning to help to force the victory Uh, this is where he started leading the cavalry wasn't it yeah, he was at the forefront at this time. Yeah. yeah. So he was under Manchester, but um, he was the head of the cavalry. I think this is where it came into play when he managed to keep his cavalry disciplined while the, cav- the cavalier's cavalry just legged it off to steal some bags. <laughs> I love that story. Steal some stuff. <laughs> um, you, love a, you love a loot, don't you? You love talking about loot. So then we have an indecisive outcome, which is the Second Battle of Newbury in October of... 1944 and by the end of 1944 this war still showed no signs of being won by either side so then in 1645 parliament passed a law and the law meant that it had to kick all the mps and lords out of the military then they passed a second law so cromwell could stay but under a new leader (laughs) 
um, who was Sir Thomas Fairfax. So this is the what we would call the new model army. So that's when we see Cromwell under Sir Thomas Fairfax, but he's still a lieutenant general and still technically an MP. So their law didn't actually like do anything. And he was Fairfax's second in command and head of the cavalry. Now it's never a good idea to have a serving general as uh, as a politician, as a senior politician. But we'll get onto that later, I'm sure. So things would take a turn for the worse on the 14th of June, 1645, when the New Model Army, commanded by Thomas Fairfax with Oliver Cromwell at his side, defeated the king and Prince Rupert at the Battle of Naseby. So Prince Rupert had warned the king that this was not a good ground to fight on, but the king had insisted and he paid for it. Yeah. This this battle turned the tide of the war. So this would be the first in a long row of defeats uh, the king's forces suffered throughout the summer and autumn. So Cromwell took part in uh, successful sieges at a lot of different places. You've got Bridgewater, Sherborne, Bristol, Devise and Winchester. They spent the first half of 1646 mopping up the resistance in Devon and Cornwall. And then that is when Charles I surrendered to the Scots. Uh, and during these sieges, they absolutely demolished the old castles that, uh, that the yes, cavaliers were holding. And it's, it's horrendous. I mean, they go to all these places and there's just kind of the, um, just the foundations remaining. And these are so like, such horrific. grand castles. It's, I love castles. Yeah. It's such a, just like a, a wanted criminal destruction of history. But anyway, that's a <laughs> sidebar. Um so by the spring of 1646, Oxford had been surrounded. Charles did manage to escape the city in disguise uh, with two companions in late April, but he was caught and handed over to the English Parliament by Scottish conventors. Those goddamn Scots. Um, <laughs> from there, he was held in North ha- Northamptonshire. Uh, here he learned of the quarrels between the new model army and Parliament and hoped to play one off against the other in order to regain his power. The king then moved to Hampton Court, where he was reunited with uh, two of his children, Henry and Elizabeth. He attempted to escape to France uh, on the 11th of uh, November, but was caught on the Isle of Wight, where the governor was loyal to Parliament. Um, Again, Charles tried to conduct separate negotiations with the army leaders, the English Parliament and with the Scots, offering all totally incompatible promises. Yeah, I mean, Cromwell, like, wanted to put Charles back in. Yeah. Yeah, She really did, with a new constitution. But Charles, like, just couldn't get it together to agree to the constitution and also agree to stuff with the Scots. So it was all, like, just a big mess. Again, I think there's a lot of crazy, incompatible uh, religious demands. Each each side, I think, wanted their kind of, like, church established in, in ways that the others wouldn't have agreed with. So he did manage to come to a secret understanding with the Scots. On the 26th of December, 1647, he offered his acceptance of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland and the establishment of the church in England for three years. Um, So if only he'd done that before. His relationship with Scotland is constantly, why didn't you just do that before? Yeah, You would be in such a better better situation. Um, However, this bid uh, failed. Um, In August 1648, the last of Charles' Scottish supporters were defeated at the Battle of Preston. So this was the 
second yeah so you have like the first civil war which is like the main one and then you have this like kind of mini one (laughs) afterwards which is the second civil war but most people most historians will just call the whole thing yeah like this whole period the english civil war but technically it's like the second civil war and then there'll be a third one um yeah later on is mentioned um uh and so the army decided the only way to end the king's double dealings was to deal him a little bit of death. <laughs> so they decided the king should be put on trial for treason as the grand author of our troubles uh, and the cause of the bloodshed. Um, so on the, tw- on the 20th of January 1649, he was brought before a specially constituted High Court of, Ju- um, of Justice in Westminster Hall. Here, Charles I was charged with high treason and other high crimes against the realm of England. He at once refused to recognise the illegality of the court because the king cannot be tried by any superior jurisdiction on earth. On earth? (laughs) On earth. Though the king regarded himself as responsible for his actions, not to his people or parliament, but to God alone, according to the doctrine oh. of divine right of kings. Yeah, the divine right of kings is just, just, just like, yeah, Cromwell is not ridiculous, like this, basically. But he he did recognise his duty to his subjects as, in his words, an indulgent nursing father. So he knew he had to be good, but it was it was very patronising. Yeah, <laughs> it's his recognition of his of his duties he therefore refused to plead but maintained that he stood for the liberty of the people of england um i mean this is something we can like uh debate later um the liberty of the people of england i mean what does liberty mean is it the liberty of society or the individual or other things but so he was found guilty um and sentenced to death on 27th of january 1649. So only 59 MPs actually signed the death warrant, like yeah. put their names on the death warrant because they didn't want they didn't want to like be seen to have signed the death warrant for history. But Cromwell yeah. was one of those 59. So his execution was ordered as a tyrant, traitor, murderer and public enemy. The sentence was carried out on a scaffold erected outside the banqueting hall of Whitehall on the morning of Tuesday, the 30th of January, 1649. So the king went to his death, still claiming that he was a martyr for the people. And a week later, he was buried at Windsor. That was the end of the English Civil War. Or was it? So now we have a bit of a turbulent time. Because Charles is dead and he's going to take power. So I think we all know the answer to that. But... Cromwell didn't come to power straight away. He didn't just like, he didn't just become the Lord Protector. There was a first, this parliament called the Rump Parliament, which I think is like (laughs) the funniest name. It makes me think of rump steak. It just makes me feel hungry. It makes me think of like my humps by (laughs) the Black Eyed Bees. And and Cromwell was fine with that because like he was part of, you know, the, the ruling gentry or the ruling classes and he had some power but he didn't necessarily want it all but he was still a skilled military man and in 1649 he was sent to end the irish war so basically there was loads of hostility going on in ireland and they needed to control that so mm-hmm. Cromwell was also incredibly hostile with the Irish. It was both religious and political. He was passionately opposed to the the Catholic Church as I have mentioned. 
Basically, Parliament planned to recapture Ireland all the way since like 1641, but obviously they were kind of involved in their own shit, and had already sent an invasion force there in 1647. But Cromwell's invasion was much larger, and with the Civil War over, it could be regularly reinforced and resupplied. And then Cromwell did some truly terrible things, and these are Uh, probably the worst things to happen during the Civil War period. It was two massacres. The first was the Siege of Drogheda in September of 1649. Cromwell's troops killed nearly 3,500 people after the town's capture, which was around 2,700 royal soldiers and civilians, prisoners, and Roman Catholic priests. So this wasn't just soldiers. Then there was a siege of Wexford in October, and this was another massacre. It took place under very confused circumstances. Cromwell was apparently trying to negotiate a surrender of arms, but some of his soldiers broke into the town, killed 2,000 Irish troops, and up to 1,500 civilians, and burned the town to the ground. Both sieges are complete atrocities, obviously, but they did end the war ultimately. One of his major victories in Ireland was actually diplomatic rather than military. With the help of Roger Boyle, first Earl of Orry, Cromwell persuaded the Protestant royalist troops in Cork to change sides and fight with Parliament. So this is his first like foray into being a diplomat. Yeah, a double dealing diplomat. <laughs> the parliamentarian conquest of Ireland dragged on for almost three years after Cromwell's departure. So at this point he went back to London. It was still going on, but he had basically... It was the beginning of the end while he was there. It's, it's interesting, because um, the reason Charles had his first army was to combat a, a rebellion in Ireland. But ultimately, those rebels in Ireland would end up supporting him against But there are, there are so many mirrors between Charles and Cromwell, and the first one is the Irish battle, and mm. you'll see so many of them that I'm about to to tell you about, but there are so many mirrors between these two men. In the wake of Commonwealth's conquest of Ireland, the public practice of Roman Catholicism was banned and Catholic priests were killed and captured. So Cromwell returned to England to find himself in the mess of the Third Civil War. So in 1650, he returns to England to find himself in the mess of the Third Civil War. So Charles I's son, Charles II, had like tried to reopen his his father's pact with Scotland, the one that was just such a great idea. In September of 1651, Cromwell was sent north to, you know, finish off the job. So he defeated the Scots at Worcester, and this marks the proper end of the English Civil War. So this is in September of 1651. So the rump parliament at this time was going mad with power. Between 1652 and 1653, they actually wanted to just end elections and make them like <laughs> make them not be able to ever be out of power. And so Cromwell did something that Charles had also previously done. And in April of 1653, <laughs> he sent troops into parliament, which is exactly what Charles had done. Um, and they had they had to be off basically. He does a he did an incredible speech that if you uh, people should watch the um, the film Cromwell with Richard Harris. Oh yes, it's on and he Amazon does the Prime speech and it's amazing. That film is amazing. It's just Alec Guinness and 
And uh, Richard Harris having a big act off. It's incredible. <laughs> I love an act off. <laughs> okay, so in si- July of 1653, he chooses 144 new members of parliament who were chosen for their saintliness. Oh boy. I know, right? So Cromwell ex- expected to them to rule as enlightened men, but instead they decided to dissolve themselves and give Cromwell all the power. Which doesn't sound very enlightened to me. And this is when he becomes the Lord Protector. So that is where this name comes in. Essentially, it's a military dictatorship. Yeah, exactly. It is. <laughs> because he is part of the military, even though he was still an MP. Yeah. So, I don't know. He was paid £100,000 a year as Lord Protector. What the hell? In that, in that money? That must be in our money, right? Must be. Yeah, in, in our, yeah. we're talking like trillions. I think that's in our money, like not that. in his money. Yeah. But that's still like a lot for our money. Mm. So that's just like, you know, that's more than, I want to say more than Boris makes, but I'm not 100% sure. Feffel, I don't know. <laughs> um, so he tried to refuse at first, but eventually he was like, all right, I'll be Lord Protector. And the instrument of government document was drawn up. He split the power between himself, 50 men of the council state, and a new parliament of around 400 people from everywhere in the UK, which included Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. So this is the first time that a parliament has ever had members of all four of the, of the countries in the UK. So elections were actually held freely, and some of the people from the Rump Parliament came back and they like weren't fans of what was going on so he took another page out of charles's book and in january 1655 he dissolved parliament (laughs) what irony (laughs) another objective of cromwell's was spiritual and moral reform he aimed to restore liberty of conscience and promote outward and inward godliness throughout england During the early months of the, which is called the protectorate, by the way, like the kind of in-between bit, in-between the two Charles's, <laughs> he had a new set of tiers was established to assess the suitability of parish ministers and a related set of rejectors which would dismiss ministers and schoolmasters who were deemed unsuitable for office. So basically he wanted to make everyone Puritan. Including yeah. like school men, school, including teachers and and priests. In late 1654, Cromwell launched the Western Design Armada against the Spanish West Indies, and in May 1655, he captured Jamaica. Hmm. He wasn't like super unpopular at this point. In 1655, a man called Penruduck organized a royalist uprising intended to put Charles II on the throne, but it completely failed because nobody joined him. So it wasn't like Cromwell was having loads of unrest um, during the middle of his time. Cromwell used this, this kind of failed uprising, as an excuse to set up a military dictatorship, like Dan said. Junta time. This lasted about a year, and in September 1656, he decided to revive Parliament again. Only this wasn't a free election like last time. He just got all his mates in. Army buddies. <laughs> yeah, and in February 1657, they voted to make Cromwell king. Yes, king. <laughs> the one thing he'd fought against. I mean, he was already the king in all but name. Yeah. On the 23rd of March 1657, the... Protectorate signed a treaty of Paris with Louis XIV against Spain. So he was still doing a lot of like foreign 
manoeuvring, he pledged to supply France with 6,000 troops and warships. In accordance with the terms of the treaty, um, they got to like bases. So Dunkirk was one of them. And there were bases for privateers and commerce like merchant shipping and stuff. On the 26th of June, 1657, Cromwell was crowned. Yes, he was crowned. Oh. Like, almost like a a coronation in all but name. But he decided to keep the Lord Protector title and not call himself king. But he was actually crowned. Oliver Cromwell increasingly took on more trappings of, of the monarchy. In particular, he created three peerages after the acceptance of his like crowning so that he made three of his friends lords in this is in 1657 and 1658 his own buckingham's yeah so this is when a lot of his old mates started to become like quite confused (laughs) about the difference (laughs) between cromwell and charles because cromwell was also trying to raise taxes and fight wars which is exactly what charles had been doing and they didn't like it so they're like, you know that bit in Animal Farm where they look from the pigs to the humans and the humans <laughs> to the pigs and you can't tell who is who anymore? It's like that, but with Cromwell and Charles. And in February 1658, there were new MPs who were elected in and they didn't like him. They were anti-Cromwell. And in the last few years of his life, he started to retreat from public life. It's said perhaps that he didn't like what he had become. Or it could just be that his popularity had waned so much that he decided to take a step back. His daughter died in early 1658 and he was like distraught. This was like his favourite person. I think maybe also called Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) Another Elizabeth. So their depression kicked in again. Yeah, well, depression, but also malaria. <laughs> so... Oh, okay, then. <laughs> he, um, yeah, he got depressed, and then he got malaria, and then he got a kidney stone, and oh, kidney disease, and obviously this was the beginning. <laughs> Not the beginning of them, this was the end. This, you know, once you get malaria in the 1650s, it ain't going to go well. For. So on the 3rd of September, 1658, Oliver Cromwell died at the age of 59. On that night he died, there was a huge storm all over England, like a massive storm. And some people said it was the devil coming to get Cromwell. (laughs) And Richard Cromwell, his son, took over. And that didn't last very long. In fact, it lasted like a year, tops. And then in 1660, Charles II was restored and we could have just not had all of this bother and 200,000 deaths and massacres in Ireland. Yeah, and that's the story of Charles I and his good old pal, Oliver Cromwell. (laughs) So I think the two questions that, that really come from this are one, what did the Civil War teach us? And two, should we have a monarchy? So I think all this, why or why the civil war is important because the civil war is really important, not just because it gave us like a view of what we would be without the monarchy, but actually <laughs> it, it paved the way for what was to become what we do now, which is we have a monarch, but basically the only thing our monarch does is sign laws. You know, she the ultimate yeah. power of sovereignty is with Parliament. It started it started us on the path to uh to something better yeah it was the start of the evolution towards a parliamentary government as opposed to a 
to a king-led government. So you have Charles II and then James II and then William and Mary. So you've got a couple of kings in between. Arguably, Charles was on the cusp of conceding a lot of this anyway. It would have been... I mean, I don't even know if it would have been a slower evolution because Charles II got quite a lot, a few of those privileges back. Hmm. Yeah, um, I think they just, they wanted so badly to, well, we wanted so badly to, like, mm. go back to stability that they thought the best way was to, like, reinstate the king. And he was on the throne for 25 years, Charles II. Yeah. He was still quite, not young, but he was, yeah, he was quite young. He was, he was, like, a young, was, you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie. He was, <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> he was a much, much, like, uh... Much more a playboy than his. Uh, yes, his exactly. Was. He was, which which worked out well for Parliament because he was a lot less interested in exactly. He, could, the he just did whatever he wanted, and Parliament were like, "Okay, well, you do what you want. We'll do what we want. Let's <laughs> see how it goes." The other question about whether we should have a monarchy or not, it still rages on. Not rages. It kind of patters on because mm. it because our monarchy don't do much in the way of uh, uh, lawmaking it doesn't affect us too much no and i love the history of monarchy i think it's really interesting Same. i don't have anything against the monarchy per se i really don't like the idea of people being above other people in terms of like they're more important than us mm. or whatever and this whole drama with megan and harry my i think my nan said it best i think i sent you the text that she said she just said like oh can they all grow up and i'm just like yes nan <laughs> nan knows i mean essentially they're just celebrities now and i'm comfortable with them just being celebrities yeah they're our version of the kardashians <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This is all the same arguments, like the tourist money and whatnot. And I, yeah, I like the I like the history, I like the story behind it. I would be sad to see them go. I think. Um, I mean, <laughs> being Britain, I mean, if we had like a president, like the president's never. I mean, like, except for except for like in the United in the United States, but in, in our system, I would suspect that we'd have the prime minister would still be the the person in charge, and you just have like a figurehead president like the chancellor in germany yeah so we might as well president. just keep the queen that's what she is exactly yeah i mean like here what what we'd end up having is just like a banker as like the president yeah it'd be so rubbish wouldn't it i actually it really like the queen yeah as far as what followed the uh the english civil war i mean there was definitely developments in parliament and whatnot the different uh constituent parts being um represented but i think i mean it's a, it's a tough one as far as individual liberties went, um, I, I think you had a lot more freedom. I mean, considering... I mean, like, this is, like, a difficult thing to argue, I mean, considering it was the 1600s and people lived in abject poverty. Uh, if you, I mean, like, most people were peasants and they had a pretty shit time of it. However, I think you did have a bit more in the way of, of individual freedom during that time. Yeah. I mean, there, it, was, it was more... Definitely more religious freedom under Charles than there was under Cromwell. and um, That is true, which is weird because that's one of the things that they were opposing against him, that he was too, like, Anglican. Mm. But then Cromwell was too Puritan. Yeah. Like, you just need someone who's okay with everyone being what they want to be. Yeah. Also, the banning of Christmas, theatre, art in general. Yeah, was Cromwell was not good horrendous. with art, which I'm... No. cross with him about so he basically took like all of the paintings 
that that Charles had collected, which was a lot, and yeah. and kind of either destroyed them or sold them. So a lot of them were sold in this kind of. I should have talked about this a bit more actually in this kind of wave of of making money for the country through mm. selling art. And obviously, I don't agree that the king or queen should take our money as in like taxes and mm. buy art for themselves that's stupid yeah. but i love art so much and i think that that really all art should be in museums i don't even think yeah, private collectors absolutely. should have masterpieces yeah. really i mean I'm not saying that if someone handed me like an el Greek, i wouldn't like take it but like <laughs> See, had, had they bought that art and just put it all into a public gallery, then that would be... That'd be sick. So this yeah, is one thing about the... This is my one argument about getting rid of the monarchy. <laughs> is that how cool would it be to walk around Buckingham Palace? Like, they'd have that to open it cool. as a museum, right? <laughs> I'd be so cool. I really want to go. That would be pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but, um... But apart they from should that, do that anyway. Half, half of Winchester Castle is just a museum. I so think they do do really... a thing where they let people go in and sometimes but you have to be like specially invited yeah no they should just open half of it up as a museum all the time mm. well while the queen is Sorry, just Queenie, like having we a, want to come in your house having a haircut and she's just, <laughs> uh, but she's she's not there at the moment anyway is she she's still winter no so yeah we could just go in don't see why we don't she's not there yeah let's just exactly. go <laughs> let's just go in there right let's go <laughs> yeah. see you there this is actually being recorded from Buckingham Palace. <laughs> I, I guess all that remains is, would you have been a roundhead or a cavalier? Yeah, that is the question. You would mm. have been a cavalier. I would have been a cavalier. Because of your hair. <laughs> Not just because of your hair. <laughs> <laughs> and my inability to grow a proper beard would mean that I would have to be a cavalier. That's a really hard question for me. I, I don't, I really don't know. Like, if... I thinking I sometimes think about what my family would have been in different decades and I wonder what we would have been had we been born had had we been around in the 1600s would we still have been middle class or would have been working class and it's that that kind of weird where we we have stood because uh-huh. if we were just like this middle classes I probably would have been more sympathetic towards Cromwell because I would have seen yeah. him as like this kind of Absolutely. working class hero, even though he wasn't in any way a working class hero. He was a landed gentry. So, what, what's the interesting thing at that time? Um, so, the army was actually, I, I say it for maybe individuals like Cromwell, but the army was way more hardcore than uh, the most most of its. Um, commanding officers so most of the rank and file of the army were really hardcore puritans so there were just a lot of hardcore puritans around in england at that time yeah so i mean it's kind of like a situation of um dictatorship of the masses i suppose <laughs> um, enforcing that the group the, the group enforcing that puritanism on on individuals though of course I am a woman, so I wouldn't have had any say, and I would have just been a baby-making machine. I mean, I'm 31, so I'm already past my prime in terms of 1600s. So, you know. But, but my um, we've like uh, my great uncle did some um, research into our family history. Is this your English side? Yeah, yeah, yeah. my dad's uh, un- uh, uncle. 
So his research threw up the at the crudges are basically um, from a from a line of like landowners in the West Country. So we would have been one hundred percent royalists. Mm, yeah, I see it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so next week we'll be taking a break for Easter, um, so you can have the bank holiday off, um, and then we'll be back the week after with Dan, who will go back to the normal dan and katie routine and while you're here if you've got to the end thank you so much for listening to our ramblings please subscribe whatever you listen to this give us a five star review if you want to no pressure but it would really help us and follow us on social media uh on twitter and instagram at have you ever pod and we'll see you in two weeks bye bye